Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is uh, 1-18-2023. And we're ready to begin our worship service this evening. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time we have this evening. We thank you for life, health, and strength. We thank you for those who have joined uh, our call this evening. We pray that as we open your word and these most critical passages, that you will give us wisdom. Allow us to see deeply into the passage that is before us. Father, we pray for those who are sick among us and those who uh, are struggling with health concerns at this hour. Father, you know those who are on our hearts, each one of us. And we pray for their healing, for their comfort, and their well-being as well. All this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so we have been studying in the book of Romans. We are at Romans eleven thirty-two, which reads, For God has bound everyone over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. So you should have some notes, <clears throat> hopefully. And in your notes, as we investigate this next passage we can see God's wisdom on display. When it comes to the business of saving lost man, God allows us to see his insight, which allows us to partner with him in this superhuman task. Even though he called us to be partners, we must know that we cannot save anyone. God does all the saving. This verse helps us put God's motives in perspective as they relate to the plan of salvation for all mankind. So we have discussed this, and one of, if you have had an opportunity to read the book, that is, uh, you guys have been my uh, eyes and ears about the book, even before it's published. But uh, if you have read the book, then you do know this is one of the key passages in the book. Uh, helping us to relate to God's motives for mankind when, as it relates to salvation. And it's important. It's, in fact, <clears throat> this verse sort of is the glue that ties everything together. There may be uh, instances in other passages where you can see uh, some of the remnants of this passage and you can put it together. Even without this passage, we, we could put it together. But, but what did God do? He gave us this passage so that there is no question about the foundation on which we stand. It's solid. There is nothing that we have that can overcome the wisdom of God and what his, act, his actions and motives have uh, resulted in. And it is all codified for us right here in a passage. So let's get right to it. Let's dig in as we uh, explore what God has to say. So for God has bound everyone over to disobedience. So we only really have taken this in two um, we, we're going to break it down in two phrases, this phrase and the next. So let's dig in. So the first thought here 
is the word for. It is the, uh, the particle gar. And this is, uh, I remember, <laughs> I won't get into the Greek of my, my Greek is, is limited, so I, I only had a year of Greek. So I don't want to make it seem like I'm some sort of Greek uh, scholar or something. I am certainly not. But I do remember this word in, uh, you know, our Greek classes, but I won't get into that. Let's just go and say what Strong says. If you want to talk to me um, outside of this, we can talk about it. So anyway, what does Strong say this word means? It's properly assigning a reason used in argument, explanation, or intensification. And this comes from strong. So, so what, we, what are we doing here with this word? Why do we have this word? And that goes to point B. This word keeps continuity with the context and assigns a reasoned response to the previous thought. I'm glad. Paul is very famous for these type of words. You know, hina, which uh, we're going to have later. But we've talked about that one. It's another connective word that Paul uses to bind together lots of prepositional phrases. And, and, and <clears throat> in fact, we know from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is said to be, in Greek, the longest sentence. Why? Because Paul continues to throw prepositional phrase upon prepositional phrase. And all of those phrases are usually joined by these connective particles. And, uh, so, But that is said to be in Greek, the longest sentence, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1. So it's no surprise that we find Paul using a, a connective word to let us know that he is in touch with the context. He's not starting a new thought He's, he may be turning some corners, but what he's telling you is that this thought connects with the previous. So we need to make sure we do the same thing. Right? When we study the book of Romans, or if you come back to it even months and months later, and you're in Romans 11, hopefully these things that we talk about, not just the verses, but the why and the wherefores, <laughs> should come into your memory, because these are things that help us understand what in the world is Paul talking about. Point, let's move on. Point C, let's dig in. So let's look at the context as a reminder. So we are going to just rehearse. We'll go through these quickly. I know it looks like a lot, but it's not. We're going to go through these quickly. Why? Just so we can make sure we orient to what Paul is going to say now. And he's showing with strong reason, you know, what he's going to say going forward. So, so we're just at the four here. So the first thought is Israel's disobedience is not failure, <clears throat> and God has not rejected his people. So we covered a lot of this already, but I just want to remind you, this is where we're coming from. This is what the context has been, and we, we thoroughly went through this, point two. Although Israel failed as a nation, individual Jews have answered God's call to the church. 
um, God ushered in a new dispensation while Israel was asleep in discipline. A lot of this, as I said, we covered. Point three, Israel was created through the patriarchs. And God sees Israel as succeeding. I just why do I say that? Is because <clears throat> we already saw where God's call and His uh, are regarding Israel. It's irrevocable. He will not repent and change His mind about what He called Israel to be. They will succeed, in other words. And He sees Israel. Obviously, if he foreknew them, then he, he obviously saw them performing according to his will. Point four. The church, often here referred to as Gentiles, have temporary, temporarily taken the role, and what role is that? Ambassadors. Right? That's what one of the roles Israel had on this earth, on the ground that Israel occupied. And what is that? Uh, depicted in this chapter, the olive tree. And you can remember how uh, we are grafted into the olive tree. We are not natural branches. Why? Because the natural branches are the Jews in the nation Israel, right, who make up the nation Israel. And the olive tree is representative of God's voice, God's light in the world. And remember, Israel, the nation Israel was to be the priest nation to all the other Gentile nations in the world. So what are we, we grafted in, uh, th then there's natural branches, and that would have been national Israel, but they are, for the most part, asleep. Point four, God does the saving work. Israel and the church are to play their respective roles to complement God's policies and ways in the world regarding salvation. And this goes back to the opening, is that we cannot save anyone. We don't have any power. God does all the work. And all we can do is partner with God. And God called these two groups for that purpose, to play these roles for him and to complement God's policies and ways in the world as it relates to salvation. And that's important because God called us. He called the church. He called Israel. These are things that happened in human history. We can't deny it. So we just have to understand the purpose for which he's called these groups. Six, or actually, uh, <clears throat> yeah, six. Each group has had their opportunity to partner with God in this effort. Notice, each group did not uh, partner with God simultaneously. Uh, God is only working with one group at a time. It's either the church or it's Israel. At the moment, he is working with the church. And the church is not a nation, but the church is in every nation. Church is the people, that is. While disobedient Israel has seen as the mission field. So when we think about that, uh, if they are unbelievers, which we have already saw, seen in Romans 9, 10, right, we've seen those chapters illustrating for us that uh, Israel was disobedient. Did they understand? They absolutely did, it says. The voice has gone out. Isaiah even said, and Paul quotes, quotes some of the Old Testament passages to let us know that Israel did know 
they understood. It wasn't that they were ignorant. It was that they were unbelieving. They refused to believe in Christ. So that's important. So when the church comes on board as partnering with God in this respect, uh, Israel is part of the mission field. Who are we to go out and give the gospel to? Jews and Gentiles. So point seven, regardless of our calling, Israel and the church, these two groups, everyone needs salvation to be in God's service. So even though God racially uh, called Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, well, unless, unless they were regenerate, they could not actually serve God in the capacity God needed them to. In fact, Israel was supposed to go out and tell the world about salvation by grace. And that would have been an impossibility if Israel was not Those in leadership, those who were leading out in the nation, were not saved by grace. Well, in the church, there's a difference. Everyone who comes through the door of salvation uh, is in the church. Right? It is not a matter of uh, any racial identity. The church is made up of former Jews and former Gentiles. And once you believe in Christ, you are one in him. So nobody, um, well, the church is only made up of saved individuals from either group. And that's, you can't be in the church unless you're saved. So that's important distinction that's different from the church and from Israel. But later, in, as Israel comes back into, uh, in, into their own, which is the, the natural branches will, will come back in, uh, and the new covenant will come to Israel, all who are in Israel will have to come through the door of salvation, that is through Christ. Otherwise, they won't be a part of Israel. So, no exceptions. <clears throat> so, uh, that's point seven. Point eight, both groups have other purposes to fulfill, right? So, even Israel, yeah, while they were supposed to be God's priest nation, it didn't mean that that was the only thing that Israel fulfilled. Israel provided other means uh, one thing, one point I will just bring forward is Christ came through the nation Israel, through the tribe of Judah, and God eventually worked it through so that Christ would be born of Israel. He was a Jew, and he walked this earth. So it is important for us to understand that God used the nation and the tribes to bring forth uh, Israel, uh, Christ rather. So Revelation 12 brings that out very clearly. So every so so regardless of our of our calling, Israel and the church. Well, oh, well here I'm sorry I'm I'm at point eight. Both groups have their purposes to fulfill, while at the same time, being blessed with partnering with God to bring the message of the gospel to the world. So, so we and the church, we don't look at our ambassadorship or ministers of reconciliation as the only purpose. That we have in this world. In fact, we could say that the purposes that God has for Israel 
and the purpose that he has for the church are different. Israel is of the world. We are not of the world. So these are distinct differences that are made. So um, that's point eight, point nine. Therefore, God made foundational decisions to ensure that man receives salvation in only one in the only way his righteous standards can be maintained. So, the thought is just to give a reminder here of what we were um, dealing with in Romans chapter 11 thus far. And, I, and it was a quick synopsis because uh, we covered a whole lot of other things in detail. So, But just throwing out a few things so that you can understand that whatever we talk about going forward still deals with the context. Point D, who has bound everyone over to disobedience is the question I pose. Who is it who has done such a thing? And the answer I already have here in the notes so you don't have to wonder. It's God. God has bound everyone over to disobedience. Is there any question about that? I don't think so. The Bible is very clear. In fact, it's very clear that where it says, um, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience. I shouldn't even have to ask this question. Although many people, many theologians even, when they look at this question, they begin to shuffle their feet and because they don't want God to be seen as authoring somehow sin or evil. They have to figure out how this makes sense according to their theology. And of course, when we look at this verse, we are allowing God to say what it is. Well, who did it? <laughs> if I ask the question, and the answer is God. I, I don't even have to look further. I could just tell you God did it because he says he did it. It says, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience. Well, what does that mean? We're going to have to deal with this. And let's see if we can understand what it means and what it does not mean. We need to see both. But before we get to that, let's look at the word bound. So there's the Greek word. Don't get me to say it here. Uh, you could read, hopefully. And, and this word means to shut up t- together, to shut up together or enclose uh, of a shoal of fishes in a net, to shut up on all sides, shut up completely, meaning bound, bind together, close together, close over so that it is totally shut up or bound. Well, it is translated bond, bound or bind, you could, but uh, just wanted to get, make sure you understood what they are meant. And there is no getting out of that uh, being shut up together or enclosed because it is not us who do it, it's God who does it, which we, we already talked about that. So, so we know God has done this. He know, you know he shut up together and all that, so let's try to understand what that means. How has God done this? This is point F. Point F. How has he done this? First, we should dispel the ways man thinks it may have happened. 
Well, there's a couple thoughts, and I, I really have to, I shouldn't have to say these things, but because I told you that there are those who shuffle the feet and, you know, begin to say, well, it's just, they don't want to have, they're afraid of the conclusions, uh, so they, they don't want to say what they think it says, they have to come up with some something else. So there's a couple human reasoning thoughts that uh, have been advanced. I'll just throw a couple out there. So point one, uh, that it happened because of the natural consequence of sin, or in other words, Mother Nature. And I've heard this uh, this theory. In other words, how has God bound everyone over to disobedience? Well, it's not God who does it. This is their thought, not mine. It's not God who does this. It is the nature of sin. See, you see, you see sin is such that if it gets in somebody or if it gets on somebody, it will destroy them. Sin is just that bad. And they say it's more of a natural consequence of sin. And that is not happening. That's not what God says. He says he did it, first of all, and we need to deal with that and not see God as separate from the, the process of this. This is something that God has actually done. We need to talk about it. So we can't obfuscate and say that it didn't happen. Two, or that it happened because of man and, uh, and their choice to sin willfully, right? So now this is a tricky one. And they'll basically say that God only looked over and saw that man was disobedient. So he concluded that they were. Like it wasn't just an, it wasn't something that God actually did. It was more of something that man did, and God just said, "Okay, that's the way it is." Well, um, there's some truth in this point number two. Man did get the ball rolling, but we got to really see how this happened, because uh, this verse is telling us something else. This, so let's go on. So I think I, I might just say it in the next few uh, points rather than me saying it now. So it, it didn't really happen in those two ways in point one and two. It didn't happen that way. Point three, it happened because of God's decision to declare all in Adam as one. Now you might say, well, what do you mean? Well, we have the concept and understanding that in Adam all die. In Adam, by one trespass, this. But because of a consequence of that one trespass, this happened. Right? So God, because of God's action, right, his decision to declare all in Adam as one. Like Adam's the federal head of the human race. And everybody in Adam follows the same properties and principles that Adam has. Well, we understand that. But you might say, well, I understand that, but how come it's like that? Why is it like that? Angels doesn't, they don't have, God could have did it different ways. Right? He could have chosen, he, he didn't do this with angels. Angels have free will. But angels individually made decisions uh, for or against God. And that was relative to what righteousness they would have afterwards. 
And like we have the elect angels, and now we have fallen angels. So God didn't have to do it that way that he did with creating one man, and then from that man he, he created all the other people that populate the earth. And each person that is in that was the progeny of Adam inherits the principles and conditions that the original Adam had. And not only that, but the penalty that Adam received is the same penalty we receive. Now, where is all this? So it so if we look at shut up together, shut up completely. When God says that, you know, and that's that's the word he has bound. Remember, the definition for bound is to shut up together, he enclosed. I think there he's referring to Adam. Right? So we're all together in this. We don't get like, oh, well, that's no one righteous, not even one. That applies to other people, not me. No, it applies to all of us. It's, we're all in the same boat. None can say, oh, well, wait a minute, I'm a Jew. So, you know, we got the law. God came on Mount Sinai, and he, our nation is blessed. And so it does not apply to me. Not true. It does apply. Everyone. He has bound everyone together. Everyone. Not some. So where is that? That's the word bound. We're together. Angels are not all bound together. And, and this, is only, this is only for hum, the human race. Let's keep going. Point four. This goes beyond Jew and Gentile. And quote, for we already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. So, so obviously, whatever happened with Adam, God made the decision that all would be under or bound together, uh, shut up together under the power of sin. And this is, you, you weren't born yet when God made these decisions. You, you were not here. He, he knew what he was going to do in, when he created Adam. So it wasn't even, uh, Adam wasn't made aware that all of his progeny would be born in sin. All he was given was the thought, you know, you got the trees of every tree you may eat, except the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You may not eat of it because if you do, dying you will die. So that was all Adam was told as far as we know in Scripture. He didn't have all the knowledge of how it was set up and so forth and so on. So that was Romans 3.9. So this verse in Romans 3.9 fits exactly what it means for God has bound everyone over to disobedience. Who is he talking about when he says everyone, Jews and Gentiles? That's everyone from God's perspective. And they are like under the power of sin. Point five. What is the power of sin? Quote, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, there it is, Adam, the many were made sinners. So we weren't made sinners because of our disobedience. We were made sinners because of Adam's disobedience. So this verse, how did, who, who set it up that way? God did. God has bound everyone over 
to disobedience. God is the one who set it up with those properties and principles so that we, being born in Adam, inherit all that Adam is and has. So that is true. Whatever is true of Adam is true of us in Adam. So, uh, so this, again, is another reference to the power of sin and, and how, to, how God has done this thing. Point, uh, that was point five. Point six, God's literal and willful act of binding everyone. Now, we have to continue to think about it because, listen, you will not find much in the commentary or commentaries about what I'm saying here this evening. They will not want to say that God did this. I, I'm not sure why. They're afraid of where this leads or what people may say or what it, I'm not sure exactly what it is the fear of this is. But I think we have to learn not to fear what the Word of God teaches. We have to learn we should be more afraid of maintaining uh, Adam's thinking in our hearts. We need to understand the Word of God. That should be uh, well, as it says, that our minds may be transformed, and then we'll, we'll be able to know and understand what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, um, that was point. So, let's finish this point six. God's literal, he did it, and willful act, he meant to do it, of binding everyone over to disobedience, means, quote, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. There it is. How does that happen? Is it natural? I mean, because Adam sinned? No. Condemnation is an, is an act of God. Condemnation is a judgment and verdict of God. It is as if God banged down the gavel and said, Condemned. And there is no appeal process. I know it's what we think about today, right? Some, you get sentenced wrong. And you say, I'm appealing. Uh, don't worry, I'm going to appeal. Well, you, there is no appeal here with God. God said condemned. And it was a deliberate act on God's part. It was an active part. That his sovereign will condemned mankind in Adam. Uh, again, it is his, as I say, literal and willful. He both did, he did both when we think about it. Point G. Why would God respond to this one sin, the one sin of Adam, in this way? Why would he do that, right? Obviously, somebody would say, um, it's not fair because others should have to stand. Everybody should be able to stand on their own two feet, right, and make their own choices. No, God made this response. It was his act to do this. He didn't ask us. He didn't say, well, how, do, how would you do it? He did it because, uh, and here it is, to protect his righteousness. That's why he did it. And here's a quote. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's Romans 3.26. But remember Romans 1.17. Right? This is, we've covered this 
when we initially started. Uh, one seventeen. let's read it. Which says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness that is from first, uh, uh, that, that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So there it is. God is saying that when he, through Paul, brings the gospel, he's going to show us a different side of the gospel. Now this is interesting because when we look at what John did, there was a lot of gospel in his book. I'm writing these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing you may have life in his name. So by him saying that, we can see that John's book was written for a purpose of salvation. We could see that that was a reality. But what we want to make sure we understand is <clears throat> that God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. He's showing you how righteousness and salvation, uh, are, how righteousness is revealed in salvation. That's what is important here. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness. And in Romans 1.17, what do we have? Same thing. God's going to show you uh, the way of righteousness in the gospel. So we need both, I'd say. We need to have what John said, understand by believing in Christ. John didn't deal with the righteousness aspect of the gospel. Paul does. So it is interesting. So let's look at it. So this last word is bound everyone over to what? Disobedience. Let's look at the word point H, disobedience. It is uh, obstinacy, obstinate, opposition to the divine will, so resistance. So that, that doesn't mean ignorance. It means we understand the will of God and we resist it. So what, what does this say? And, and point I, it says something about uh, the word, so it's the word disobedience. Right? It doesn't mean just unbelieving. It means resistance. Right? Well, it's the same word, apatho, that we have seen in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has life. But whoever refuses or resists or is obstinate toward God will not see life, and the wrath of God remains on them. So all of us have this obstinacy to start with because we're in Adam. However, when God confronts us, that this obstinacy is tested and our volition is a factor. And we have to make a decision. Do we accept God's grace offer or do we reject it? And that's the thought. So the word in point I describes the depravity and rebellious spirit of the sin nature. That's what the obstinacy... So when you talk about that, it talks about somebody who's headstrong and resistant and all of that. It, it helps us understand the stubbornness of the sin nature against God's will. And this is why I say the rebellious spirit. Right? We, we have a rebellious spirit within us. It's not just, oh, we got a sin nature and it makes me want to do things that are that God doesn't like. We hate God. <laughs> and our, our sin nature hates God and does not, like it says in Romans 8, 7, the sin nature is hostile to God. It will never submit to God. 
and, and, and neither can it. So it's important to understand that. Romans 3, 9 through 18 talks about the uh, obstinacy <clears throat> of the sin nature. A lot of people will read uh, Romans 3, 9 through 11, right? Uh, or 12, 9 through 12. It says, oh, oh, so all of us are under sin. Yes, all of us are under sin. 10, none in righteous, not even one. None understands, not even one. No one seeks God. All have turned away and together become worthless. There's no one who does good. But we forget that, and people say, yeah, that's that's me and Adam. But you forget that Romans 3, 13 through 18 is also you? Yeah, here it is. It says, uh, there is no fear of, of, well, I skipped to the end. Let's go to 13. Their thir throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's all of us. That's in Adam. All of us in Adam. Now, listen, even though we know these things, we are not quick to admit these things about ourselves. We are not quick to say that we would do such things. We kind of look at ourselves as above this behavior. But God is saying, this is how repulsive you are to me in Adam. This, this is what it looks like to me. I know what you think. You think, well, <laughs> I'm above such things, God. You know, I'm, you know, I'm moral. And yeah, I might be not aligned with you. And I know I'm not righteous. And I know I need Christ's righteousness. But God, I'm not that bad. God is trying to tell you through metaphor, you are that bad. Yes, sin nature must be destroyed. Nothing that comes from the sin nature can be used by God. And I hope the message is clear. That should be the, the, the thought. And then you've got Romans 7, 14 through 24. Um, let's look at this. So 14 says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. What do, what do you mean sold as We're bound under the authority of the sin nature. I know like we like to think we're in control and we make all these decisions and we're... No, the sin nature. Now, of course, those of us who have received the baptism of the Spirit, fast forward here, are free from the sin nature. And we can make decisions according to our righteous nature, which has been given to us. So that is true. But I'm saying unregenerate man, this is true of them. Those in Adam... So, so he says in 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. But it is sin, sin nature, living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Notice the inability, the weakness, the a slave to sell as a slave to sin. 19. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I want to do, well, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, 
It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find a law, a principle at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law, another principle at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So if you wanted to get a cross-section, a cutout of what it looks like on the inside, there we have it. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? So if we don't understand what God has done is he has bound everyone over to disobedience. And I just want you to see how completely shut up and closed we are within what God has bound us over to. What he means by this disobedience, which is the raw nature of the sin nature that we have. So, uh, what are we at? 901. Well, we got got through half of this, I think, uh, in good time. And we could keep going. We just have some points that, uh, which says, so that he may have mercy on them all. <laughs> well, we're going to stop because we have opportunity for some Q&A. But um, you have the notes before you and next week we will come back and we will go through the second phrase here so that we may have he who's he God may have mercy on them all we'll get to it and it's important as this verse is not just some verse that we can just read over this verse is said to be in the next verse the wisdom of God this verse is like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, not just a verse, but a principle of understanding. It's foundational. So we need this in our back pocket. Well, let's forget about the back pocket. We need this in our heart so we understand. This is foundational to everything we believe and how we are to grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we will pause. We will stop at this point. And uh, if there's something you want to discuss, the floor is open. I will pause. You know, there's one scripture that I was thinking of while you were uh, speaking. And that was where it talks about Christ died for all, so therefore all died. Yeah, and that fits so well with what you, what you, what you were. It actually does, yeah. That verse in Second um, Corinthians chapter five is where you you're referencing, and um, so it says, "For uh, here it goes, um, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced we're convinced that one died for all." So this is, and therefore all died. So we're talking about the bad news and the good news, which kind of this second part of this verse balances out the first part. And we haven't gotten to it yet, but it, it, if you read forward and you kind of know what the foundation is, you, you know that, yeah, God bound everyone over to disobedience. Well, 
why did he do that? Is he just mean? Is he hateful? No, so that he may have mercy on them all. We're going to get to that. But here we see the balance as well, right? And in verse 14, right? Christ died for all, and therefore all died. When, did, when could we say all died? All died in Adam. So we could say all died, and it was just a consequence of sin. But no, all died because God arranged it that way. It didn't have to be that way. And part, partly in the book, I make the point, it'd be one thing if, you know, people would say, oh, well, nature is just that way. And it's a natural result. But no, God deliberately did this. So it says here, God, made, you know, he bound everyone over. Well, he literally did this for us. So that now he can provide a way of salvation, which everyone in the world, Everybody, all of them, can benefit from in the same way. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter what religion. Oh, I was born under Islam or Hinduism or I'm an atheist or whatever you say. It doesn't matter. God did this for the whole human race. Our salvation provides for every person that was ever born on the planet. And the negative things that God put us all in, in into, it applies. And then all of the grace solutions that God has, the provisions by the Lord Jesus Christ, are for all, not some. I will pause. follow-ups, other questions, other thoughts. All right. Well, no, I don't, I don't have a thought. I, I think I just have a lot to absorb. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and that's fair. That's fair. I understand. Certainly, you know, this is, these are, I Listen, God is saying this is wisdom. We didn't get to that. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We're going to get to those verses to understand this. I don't think this is on the surface of things. And, there, you know, probably because in theology, and even forget about theology, just man in general, they may have boundaries uh, but they are human boundaries that have been created about what the scriptures and God and all those things are. And then, so if something comes close to that, they reject whatever uh, the thought is because they don't want to lead it to lead somewhere where they won't have control, or you know, it's beyond it's. They kind of put God in the box, and any verse that's going to take them out of it has to really be something that they can control. And this is a verse that is not within man's capability. And in the 
opening, I said that this was a salvation is a superhuman task. It is not something that we can do. Um, it's not say the magic words and you're saved. It's not anything that is related to man. And then when we see who man is, well, it's perfectly clear why salvation must be by grace. It cannot be any other way. It must be by grace. So we want to make sure um, we follow God and follow his wisdom so that we can benefit from it. This is the foundation, and whatever is in the foundation is important for us to understand as we 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 delve in. So, listen, I'm fine if we if we don't have any questions and you, you want to be reflective, and we will, that will save us, will save you some time because it'll I'll be able to give you back some time. So I will pause, throw it out there again, see if there are any thoughts. If not, we could close. All right. Sounds like everybody is, I'm going to say deep in thought, I hope. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, fine. So we will conclude... Uh, almost make me think makes me think we should go on but I think we we had enough to think about this evening we will take that time and I will package it up and give it back to you this evening so let's close as we bow our heads thank you father for the privilege that you have opened your heart to us to share this important information and father as we look at these scriptures and and understand why there is bad news in the first place, why these things have happened the way they have, we marvel. All we can do is thank you, Father, for revealing these things to us. We thank you for those who have joined, and we pray for wisdom for each of us as we grapple with the things that are before us. Also, Father, we pray a special prayer for... Uh, for Peer tonight, Father, we learned that she lost her mother today, and we we know that the family is grieving. So, Father, we we want to pray, lift that family up, and ask for comfort and healing in in the wake of their lost loved one. So, thank you, Father, for for the study this evening. For those who joined, and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.